we are, and, and as much as I appreciate uh, the Advent reading, and, and that one especially, uh, I, I think, focused on remembering Christ's first Advent, but you can't help but also anticipating his second Advent. And, of course, being in the book of Revelation, that is all the more true. If you want to turn to Revelation chapter 9, so as much as Nick and Mikhail and the worship team trying to get us into the Christmas spirit, um, I confess that this message may not be as much so, um, but next week will be a Christmas message, and a Christmas day will be a Christmas message, so we'll, we'll certainly get that. Uh, but we have been in Revelation. I wanted to get back into it here this morning. And we are in chapter 9. And if you'd like to follow along, I'm going to start at the very beginning here, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. But only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Speaking of locusts, the year 1915 gave us, gave the world the worst locust invasion in the last 100 years. Black swarms of locusts descended on, of all places, I was surprised to know, on Palestine. And uh, National Geographic in 1915 titled the, 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 uh, the, um, the article, Jerusalem's Locust Plague. And the writer here uh, writes this, Whiting, that's the author. Whiting often describes as if he's seeing the Bible come to life in front of him. When the daintier morsels were gone, the bark was eaten off the topmost young branches, which after exposure to the air, blanched snow white, he writes of the locust process of destroying an orchard of fig trees, before once again quoting Joel, that's the prophet Joel, so Natural Geographic is quoting Joel, uh, speaking of a locust invasion. He hath lain my vine waste and barked my fig tree. The branches thereof are made white. In Nazareth, the air was rendered almost unbreathable by the stench of locust carcasses. Now, can you imagine if today Jerusalem experienced that same sort of locust invasion? You'd have every pastor that same Sunday declaring, this is the end. And they'd probably be right. I, I, I would think that. That would be, that would be crazy. 
this locust plague was devastating. The area was already impacted by the beginning of World War I in 1914. The Ottoman Empire had put a blockade on certain crops into the area, so that was bad enough. But then the locusts came and ate everything else such that there were an estimated 200,000 people starved to death as a result of the war and of the locust plague. But that wasn't the worst locust plague in history. The worst one that we know about happened 50 years earlier in, of all places, the Great Plains of the United States, where there was an estimated, get get this, you can't wrap your head around this, 12 trillion locusts weighing approximately 30 million tons formed a swarm 1,800 miles long and 120 miles wide. Here's a short description. On the horizon, they often appear, appear as a dust tornado, riding upon the wind like an ominous hailstorm, eddying and whirling about like the wild, and finally sweeping up to and past you with a power that is irresistible. The noise of their myriad jaws makes when engaged in their work of destruction can be realized by anyone who has fought a prairie fire or heard the flames passing long before a brisk wind, the low crackling and rasping. So absolutely devastating, unimaginable. That was caused by the Rocky Mountain locust, and oddly enough, not a single Rocky Mountain locust has been seen since 1902. So how do these relatively, relatively recent locust plagues compare to the one that's described in the text we just read? Well, in many ways, they ain't nothing by comparison, right? This locust plague described here is initiated by the fifth angel blowing his trumpet. So I'm going to stop there and, and explain to you, well, how do we get to the fifth trumpet? You know, last time we were in Revelation, we were in chapter 7, and we didn't even get to the trumpet, so why do we skip the first four trumpets? Let me uh, explain why that is the case. Uh, this chart I'd put in the bulletin that's unreadable, obviously, but a couple of times, and there's copies should be on the back table there, but if I zoom in, you'll see that four of the seven trumpets and four of the seven bowls are practically identical. This is one of the reasons I've mentioned before I hold to what's called the recapitulation theory of Revelation, that the seals and the trumpets and the bulls are just repeating the same idea. They're they're describing the same sets of events uh, slightly differently, and there's there's sort of a crescendo that's happening uh, between those three. So I'm skipping ahead because I don't want to, uh, what would be covering essentially the same ideas twice. So uh, I will cover all of these eventually. But think about it, even if you believe that these are chronological events, uh, you don't necessarily want to keep repeating the exact same thing over and over, right? So, so I'm trying to, and will try to, for the rest of Revelation, strike this balance between sufficiently covering things, not just willy-nilly skipping something, but also not just repeating the same thing where, where, where it feels like every single week we're just bogged down in battles and apocalyptic imagery, okay? So that, that is part of my explanation. So, this locust invasion begins like anything, unlike anything else that has ever come before. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the shaft, the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, this fallen star is most likely, the text doesn't tell us, but it's most likely Satan himself, or, or else one of his powerful minions. And uh, seems to be, at least in my thinking, a near match to Isaiah 12. We read there. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. So the same idea of falling from heaven. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low, who said in your heart, 
I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. This is uh, traditionally described, understood, as Satan's fall from heaven. And if this is describing what we see here in chapter 9, his fall from heaven actually happened when? At the beginning of creation, right? Not in the future, uh, when the trumpet was blown. So putting these two ideas together, what, what could be happening here is that John is seeing a vision, right? So this is a new vision for John. And he's seeing, at the same time, Satan, when he did fall from heaven, and he's also seeing the, the events that's going to happen because of that, events in the future, right? But he's seeing it all as one vision, sort, sort of all of time scrunched together. At least that's the way I understand it could be happening. But the important point here is that he was given the key to the bottomless pit, whoever he was. And if there was Satan, he'd already fall from heaven, but now he is given the key. So one of the first questions is, well, well, what is this bottomless pit? The Greek word is the word abyss. And I prefer the CSB translation. It reads like this. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given him. So not, not the bottomless pit, but the shaft of the abyss. Do you remember... In uh, the Gospels, when Jesus is going to heal the uh, Gerasene demoniac, and he's full of demons, and Jesus asked him his name, and he said, my name is Legion, for we are many, right? And he says, uh, Lord, he begs Jesus, don't send us into the abyss, right? You know this. Don't send us into the abyss. So Jesus actually uh, granted their request and sent him into the herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs went over the, the cliff and all died there. Um, so the, the abyss, whatever it is, it seems to be a type of prison within hell, right? And whatever it is, it's so bad that not even the demons want to go there. I mean, that's, that's as bad as it can possibly get. Revelation itself tells us uh, even more clues about it from chapter 11. And when they had finished their testimony, that's the testimony of the two witnesses, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Chapter 17, the beast that you saw and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Now we're in chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And then a couple verses later, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. That's the millennium. After that, he must be released for a little while. So uh, whatever it is, uh, not even the demons want to be there. But this, this scene is, is terror-inducing, at least it, it should be. Verse 2 again. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, the abyss, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. So, so, so just picture this. Right on the earth, on the horizon somewhere, this bottomless pit, the shaft opens, and smoke is just pouring out of it. And just within minutes, so much. It's like Mount St. Helens, some great volcano. The sun is darkened. You see nothing. It's, it's almost like night. And then it's, that's not bad enough. Out of that smoke, suddenly it looks just like smoke, but now you see swarms of locusts flying about. Let's... Uh, bring some encouragement 
is what I want to do from this grim event. Point number one this morning, nothing happens apart from the Lord's sovereign hand. That's the kind of encouragement you want when you see a scene like this. Look at the language of sovereignty in this passage. We read that uh, this key was given, uh, they were given, they were told, they were allowed. Do you see how, how clear that is? Uh, that nothing, everything that was happening here, all of the demonic activity, uh, every bit of it was only allowed because, because the Lord said it was okay. They were given that authority. They were allowed to do things. They were even told to do things. You must do this. You must not do that. Nothing happens apart from the Lord's sovereign hand. Now, you've heard that before, have you not? Nothing happens apart from the Lord's sovereign hand. God is sovereign of all things. That's Christianity 101. But at the same time, it's a message we can't possibly hear often enough, right? In the middle of the week, when we feel like uh, we're, we're about done, we need to know again that nothing happens apart from the Lord's sovereign hand. When, when Brian wakes up at 1.30 a.m. this morning and finds out he has a seven-centimeter uh, uh, kidney stone stuck there and he's in terrible pain, he needs to know that nothing happens apart from the Lord's sovereign hand. And I think that's especially true when you spend time in Revelation and passages like this one. It'd be easy to get caught up in the precise identity of these vicious locusts or just get discouraged by, by this constant description of, of difficult things. But we must note again that each and every decision required specific permission. Sort of like the, the drill sergeant in those war movies where they, they line up the young recruits and, and, you know, he's screaming at them. He's walking down the row and he's like, you bums can't do anything without my permission, you know. And he is God, right? He is for a period. He's God to them. They literally can't do anything without his permission. The demonic world cannot lift a finger without God specifically allowing it. Number two. Believers experience Satan's fury, but never God's wrath. I think one thing we can see here, especially when you uh, compare it to other, uh, there's no such thing as an ordinary locust plague, is it? But other locust plagues, we see these are not ordinary locusts. Verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So the question is, everybody wants to know, when we open this chapter, is what are these things? Well, there has been endless speculation about it. No surprise that Hal Lindsey, the, the most, probably the most popular end times writer in the 1970s era and, and beyond, wrote this. For example, a locust with the face of a man. I personally tend to think that God might utilize in his judgments some modern devices of man which the Apostle Paul was at a loss for words to describe 19 centuries ago. In, this, in the case just mentioned, the locust might symbolize an advanced kind of helicopters. Of course it is. What else could it be? Uh, but what's missing here from the description? Where's the hair? Exactly. What, is that what you said? Oh, stinger. The stinger is a scorpion. It's the tail of the helicopter, obviously. There's no, there's no hair here, right? Um, so these are sorts of speculations that, that people have uh, put forth. But many people draw comparisons, as the National Geographic writer over 100 years ago did, to Joel's 
the, the locust plague in Joel's day. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, right? The same description. And it has the fangs of a lioness. The next chapter, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The locust in Joel's day, I see two similarities to the locusts here in Revelation 9. One, uh, some of the descriptions are similar, lion's teeth and sun being darkened, although in Joel's day, I think the sun was darkened by the locusts themselves as opposed to the smoke and the locusts. And number two, they're both judgments from God, uh, clearly. Uh, but beyond that, they're, they're really, really different. Because every locust plague that has ever come has consumed grass and plants and crops, right? They just wipe out every, every living thing, but not this one. They're not permitted to eat anything. That's just crazy, isn't it? Their sole purpose is to inflict pain, but only upon unbelievers. So once again, we see God's protection for his people by placing his seal on their foreheads. Now, there are also strong similarities to judgments in Revelation, and we'll see this as we work our way through the rest of the book. The plagues on Egypt and plagues in Revelation 4, maybe 5, depending on how, how you, you count them. Uh, lots of similarity there. Even more so uh, is the similarity of God's protection. Exodus 8 reads this. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. And he does that three different times. He gives that same phrase. I'm going to make sure you understand. Those are not my people. You are my people. And what happened, of course, we understand, is that all the plagues fell on all the Egyptians. None of the plagues fell on any of the Israelites. In the same way, God is making a clear distinction in this chapter between believers and unbelievers. And that's the, the fascinating and, I think, difficult thing to understand about these coming days is the fact, one, that countless believers will suffer Satan's fury, will be persecuted, will be martyred, but not a single believer will suffer any of God's wrath. And at this stage of things, Satan's fury will be at its peak in all of human history. And we, we understand that Satan clearly is in charge of this locust army. We look at the bottom of the chapter, it says his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it's Apollyon. The, 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 both words mean the same thing, destruction and destroyer. That's his name, that's, that's what he does. He is the destroyer. So what's, what's happening here is that Satan is in charge of this locust army, but only because God allowed it. Even in his fury, Satan is still accomplishing God's will. Think about that. In his fury, Satan is accomplishing God's will. Now, he thinks he's accomplishing his will, but it's actually both. Satan hates God, but he cannot avoid doing God's will. Think of that. There's so many examples of this in Scripture. Herod and Pontius Pilate, they sinned greatly. No greater sin in human history than killing Jesus Christ uh, but they, we are told the evil men did this, Acts 4, by your hand and your will had predestined to take place. So God used the evil intentions of men to bring about the death of his son. And in the same way, God is using the evil intentions of Satan to bring about the great tribulation, even including this locust plague, these demonic locusts. 
Now, it's possible for some of you to keep saying that God doesn't, that no evil ever happens unless God allows it. That may not be encouraging to you. We mean it to be encouraging, but it may not be encouraging you because you're thinking, well, okay, it's as if God just kind of stands aside and allows all of this evil to happen, which is what is happening, right? And you say to yourself, well, it's just a quick step then to make that very personal. God's doing all that evil out there. What about the evil in my life? Why would God allow that evil into my life? natural evil, evil done by some other person. Why would God do that? We have the age-old question of the problem of evil. And some Christians think it is a pretty simple answer by saying, well, well, God had to do that, otherwise uh, man would not have free will. Uh, So that's the way they answer. We would just be robots if God did not allow people to do whatever they want to do. Now, there's no question that that Satan and men like Herod and Pontius Pilate were acting of their free will. God holds them absolutely accountable. So they did those things of their own free will. But here's where we have to be careful in this line of reasoning because it can start to, if we're not careful, it can start to chip away at God's sovereignty. Because if man has unlimited free will, as as some would say, then, then can they do something outside of God's will would be the question. What we're saying is that they're compatible, that the evil actions of mankind, even evil creatures like Satan and his demons, uh, they're acting of their free will, but they're also completely doing God's will simultaneously. Difficult to understand. Here's a a quote from uh, Howard Marshall. Might, Might bring some light. We must certainly distinguish between what God would like to see happen and what he actually does will to happen. And both of these things can be spoken of as God's will. For example, as we've already stated, God willed that his son would be crucified, but God did not want his son to suffer. God wills that Satan would have great authority in this world, but God does not want us to suffer as a result. Do you see? Even just yesterday in my, my morning devotions, I'm reading about uh, the end of Solomon's reign, the beginning of, of his son Rehoboam, and that before that, God had predicted that Solomon's son Rehoboam would bring a division between north and south in Israel. There, there, would, there was just one unified uh, kingdom, I- Israeli kingdom, uh, but now it's going to be split in half. And you understand how devastating that is, all right? So, so let's back up so, some, some history here. How'd they get in the promised land? First, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. God miraculously redeems them out of Egypt, and then they go in the promised land. No, 40 years of wandering in the, in the wilderness, and then they finally get in the land, and they, they defeat all their enemies, and they settle into their tribes, and, and they've got judges that, that are okay for a while, then the people sin, so you've got hundreds of years of, of the cycle of, of continual idolatry and repentance, idolatry and repentance. Then finally they get their first king, Saul, David number two, Solomon number three, Rehoboam, splits the country in half, never united again. Northern kingdom goes off into Syria, is never seen again. The southern kingdom of Judah just sort of uh, peters away slowly into oblivion. So what Rehoboam did, Solomon's son did, was earth-shattering in all of Old Testament history. And here is how it was described um, by God. It says, this turn of events, the turn of events that, that, that caused Rehoboam to split 
the country in half. This turn of events came from the Lord to carry out his word, which the Lord had spoken through the prophet Ahijah. It's, it's simple, but it isn't easy, right? It's simple. God predicted it. God promised it. Therefore, it happened. And he used the idolatry of Solomon, who loved many foreign women to the tune of 700 wives and 300 concubines, and, and, and build all these uh, uh, terrible idols to Molech, and, et cetera. And then Rehoboam's utter foolishness, he could have prevented it. He had an out, but he didn't. God used all that evil to accomplish his purposes. God is so powerful, so sovereign, that he pulls those things together. He can use the free action of sinful creatures, men and fallen angels, to accomplish his purposes. And the result is that nothing happens outside his will, and just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it's right, because the judge of all the earth will always do right. One more verse in that regard, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That way we may do all the words of this law. So what does that mean? It means that we are just simply asked to obey God's clear revealed will, but there are secret things that belong to God. And I would put some of what we're talking about here into that category. The Bible describes it, but doesn't explain it for us fully. And we just say that belongs to the secret things of God. Number three, no surprise, Satan hates his own worshipers. That doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, but, but it's true. I mean, it makes sense if it's Satan, but not in a normal context. There's no question about this, but should be stated clearly. If Satan hates God and all who follow him, it would be reasonable to assume, therefore, that Satan is going to want to ga- ga- join forces with everybody else who hates God, right? In, 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 in many sense, he does do that. Uh, It's true. Every day, men and women do the will of Satan in opposition to God, whether or not they realize it or not. Now, in that case, normally you could use the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? He's... All mankind are enemies of Satan, but, but because they also hate God, then they're his enemy. But Satan does not... or They're his friend, rather. Satan does not have friends. It's not possible. He will use people to do his will, and then he immediately turns around and literally kills them. That's what happens with this locust plague. Satan released this demonic swarm of locusts that only harmed his followers. Think about that. Now, in his uh, demonic will, he would have hoped it would harm everybody, but in God's sovereign plan, he sealed all believers so that was thwarted, and it only harmed his followers. But he doesn't care. At this stage, at that stage in the future, his end is near. He knows it, so he's going to pull out, pour out his full wrath on anyone and everyone without distinction, as opposed to the Lord who always makes a distinction between his enemies and his people. But Satan hates everyone equally, even those who knowingly follow him. Number four, the fifth trumpet will be a taste of hell. This is where I get the title for the sermon from verses 5 and 6 specifically. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. 
And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. I don't know about you, but based on what we know of hell from the scriptures, I don't know if I can uh, think of a better description than this. People will seek death and not find it. Imagine if your doctor had just given you the horrific news that in two weeks you're going to die. Your, your, your cancer is so severe you're not going to make it for two more weeks. Then the locust plague comes. Guess what? You can't die. There's nothing. That can kill you. There's no disease. There's no weapon. There's no bomb. There's no, no, no act of suicide that can kill anybody. They'll seek to die, but death will flee from them. The only difference between this, what I call taste of hell, is the fact it only lasts for five months. That's why I call it a taste, but a taste it is. But actual hell lasts for all eternity. It's quite a vivid picture for us. And last one this morning, we see hard hearts and repentant hearts in the last days. So what what is the outcome of this plague? Look down at verse 20. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. That's as somber and discouraging as it can get. No matter what God throws at them, no matter what judgment he throws at them, people seem to resist turning from their evil ways and trusting Christ. And we see this theme repeated several times. They, they refuse to repent. They refuse to repent. They refuse to repent. But, on the other hand, we also know that millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of people, do repent during this time, during the, the tribulation. We see them from every tribe, nation, people, language gathered around the throne and worshiping God. So we know that will happen as well. It will be a period of unprecedented revival and opportunity to repent and believe. But it does seem to, I'm not confident of this, but to me it seems like the further you get into the seven-year tribulation, especially the last three and a half years, it seems to get more difficult to repent. People seem to harden their hearts more and more, which is the way it works in life, is it not? The more you harden your heart, the more your heart is hardened. It just just repeats. It's It's like a downward spiral. You know, not saying that there isn't hope for them, but it gets more difficult. Now, the further we go, as we, those days get closer, we will continue to see more things like this. A tweet from a couple days ago. This guy says, Christian, it is time to publicly admit that the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality. A clear reading of Scripture easily shows this. He says, what isn't easy is you've got to admit you're wrong, and you've got to admit why you want it to be right in the first place. Now, um, I, I know where this guy's going. Uh, 20-some years ago, I interacted with dozens of pastors from the Madison area on this very topic, and, and, and they talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, so they have their own way of describing it, but I'll, I'll just say uh, that he's 100% wrong. But I want to make, make a larger point here, and that, that, that's this, that we always need to make a distinction between a temptation to sin and the actual behavior of sin, Okay? And what happens is, in life, you've got nature and nurture. Nature, right, uh, I believe it's, it's possible 
I don't think anyone's proven it definitively, but I think it's possibly uh, sometimes through uh, maternal hormones, sometimes uh, some genetic uh, links or possibilities. You have a, uh, a genetic or natural predisposition. Predisposition doesn't mean that you, you must sin, but to certain types of sin. Uh, but then nurture, right, the way you're raised makes a massive difference in people's lives. For example, my mom was, I don't think I've shared this before, my mom was very, very depressed, clinically depressed. I remember as a young boy, she spent several weeks at a time on at least two occasions in the psychiatric ward uh, of a hospital, and then she would have uh, periods of, of great rage. Uh, I mean, I won't even tell you about a time we were at at a public restaurant, uh, just, just crazy times. So I experienced all that growing up, and praise the Lord, uh, I don't seem to, even at almost 60 now, have any predisposition to depression, but the nurture, believe me, I picked up on the anger and even the rage. No question about that. See, so you see what I mean? So in the same way, just because someone struggles with a temptation, whatever it is, that doesn't make it a sin. I mean, you know this, but it needs to be said. And, and here's, here's what I want to reflect upon what, what this guy's saying. And by the way, he's... Uh, you might think he's some kind of, you know, crazy liberal or progressive, but he went to school two degrees at Cedarville, um, one at Dow Seminary, one at Portland uh, Seminary, so, so, so good schools. Uh, he, but he, here's what I want to talk about. I'm surprised that in, I've been a pastor 28 years, uh, been a pastor to hundreds of people, had Many of them over the years come and, and talk about a sin they're struggling with and, and something they're really going through and, the, and they, they're seeking some help. But in all that time, not one person has ever shared with me that they're struggling with a, a temptation for homosexuality. And I thought to myself, why, why is that? I'm reflecting on that. Why is that? Could it be... I don't want this to be, but could it be that, that I, or perhaps even we as a church, somehow have communicated in such a way that we have not allowed them to, to feel safe even, you know, to, to come and talk to us? And that's a challenge. When, you, when you're talking about a sin, when you, when, especially when you're, you're, you're trying to, to refute uh, somebody who claims to be a, a Christian, who, who is a pastor, who says, this thing isn't a sin, Right? We, we talk about sin. We want to make those things clear. But, but when you say, this thing is a sin, you've got somebody listening saying, yeah, but I struggle with that. I struggle with that. So, so if we're not careful, there can be this sort of this, at least an implicit condemnation, a, a sense that we're, we're, we're throwing shame upon you as opposed to representing the Lord Jesus who who's, we say, you know, Hebrews says, run to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And, and we ought to be people, I don't care if you're a pastor or an elder, uh, just call, you're saved by the blood of Jesus. We ought to be so moved by God's mercy that, that no matter what, just fill in the blank. I don't care what the sin is, but, but I did want to mention this one in particular, that, that people feel willing to come to us, feel, feel that they can trust us. 
And we need to do this all the more because while our culture is normalizing and glorifying everything that goes against God, and they seem to be really uh, camping out on these types of sins, the world is pushing people away from the Lord. The church and her people ought to be more gracious than ever. So if they come to you and say, I'm struggling with this, we should say, good, good, you're struggling. Now, I don't mean good that you're struggling, I mean good that you're in the fight, do you see? Because if you weren't struggling, it could be you've already given into that long ago, repeatedly, and over and over and over. But the struggle, the struggle is often a sign that the Holy Spirit is in you and is fighting with you. So the struggle is good. We need to come alongside those people. Now, now understand, you don't love people by removing sin from the Bible. But neither do you love people by condemning them in their sin and temptation struggles. In the last days, is going to bring more repentant hearts and more hard hearts. So our question is, which one will we be? Let's pray. Father, we cannot fathom your mercy. We, j- we just took a breath because of your mercy. Those that have been cleansed by the blood of your son, Jesus, seated here this morning, pure mercy, no works on our part, Father, we, we ought to, to see this mercy, your son, so, so clearly that whatever struggle we're in, whatever struggle comes our way from someone who we care about, that same mercy ought to pour out of us by, by your spirit, by your strength. Father, make us... Continue to make us into people who, who love your truth because you are truth. We must love the truth because it embodies who you are, but we also must love mercy because you are pure mercy. Impossible without your spirit. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I would love if you would stand and we'll sing a final chorus together you know you become what you take in largely you understand that I was talking to Rod listening this morning and, and you know I've known people who, who take in just endless like news bad news all the time and, and then, then all, all they can do is talk about all the bad right I'm not saying don't watch any news I'm not saying that but if, if you behold the wondrous mystery of Christ, if that's what you spent your time taking in, right, that's what's going to be likely to pour out of you. So let's, let's worship the Lord together. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption.
See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him, Praise the Lord, He is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected, as we will be when He comes. Isn't that great news? Amen.